so I'm going to share with you a message that kind of goes with the theme of covenant renewal today. And I've titled the message, Reminders of What Grace Deserves. Reminders of What Grace Deserves. Now we'll start out, I heard a story of two elderly ladies who had been friends for many years. And they'd started this tradition after the youngest of them retired. For about 20 years, they'd been going through this um, regular ritual, if you might call it, where on sunny days, there was this one particular local park that they would both go to, and they would just enjoy one another's company. They would sit on this same park bench there in the sunshine, enjoying one another's company. 20 years, they'd kept that tradition. Well, one day, the younger lady turned to the older and said, please don't be angry with me, my friend. But I sure am embarrassed. After all these years, I can't recall. What is your name? I I just can't remember. Well, the older friend just kind of stared back at her and looked very distressed and was just shaking her head. Two full minutes of that went by until finally she blurted out, Just how soon do you need to know? (laughs) You know, God has designed the human mind such that there are often times when we find that we need to be reminded of certain things. That goes for individuals who are both young and old. When our children go back to school from summer break, they often need to be reminded how to do the advanced math that they were capable of doing at the end of last school year because they've forgotten how to do these things over the summertime. In my technology job, we have this daily meeting, this daily stand-up where we get together and we talk about the things that we've been working on and the things that we need to do next. And there are often times when on Monday mornings, I can't recall the things that I was working on on Friday. And so we often need to be reminded. That's true for men and for women. I saw a post online that said, if a man says that he will fix something, he will fix it, and there's no need to remind him every six months. Well, guys, maybe after six months, we should reconsider getting a reminder, right? I've also read that before a man criticizes his wife's faults, he should remind himself that it was probably those very faults which prevented his wife from getting a better husband than the one she married. And so, men, I encourage you, take that reminder to heart. Reminders can help us to stay on task. I use digital calendars for all the important meetings that I schedule. And they they always provide a reminder to tell me, this meeting is coming up tomorrow or in 15 minutes. You need to patch into this call. And they're, they're very helpful to me. Without those reminders, I would often miss important meetings that I'm supposed to be a part of. And the human mind often needs to be reminded if we are to keep on course and to keep striving to fulfill what we've been called to do. And that's the reason why your leadership team and I have set aside today, this first day of the year, as Covenant Sunday. The new year often inspires us to make fresh commitments. It inspires us to be reminded anew of the goals that we want to achieve for ourselves. And so individuals make what we know as New Year's resolutions. And really, the Christian life should be no different. We should have goals, and we should be reminding ourselves of these goals. And so our hope on this day is that on this day of reminders, as we explore not just 
the grace that deserves our diligence in serving Christ, but also the vision that we have as a church and, and what we are striving to do as a body. We hope that each and every individual who is involved and engaged in some way with New Vision Fellowship will grow in his or her walk with Christ because of commitments that we make to him through this place. And we want to remind those who are members of this body what it is that we've covenanted to do, together to do as a body. There is a common basis of what we said, this is what I pledge myself to do. And there are needs for us to be reminded of these things. And the Bible knows that we need reminders. In fact, in our passage for today, we find some instructions from a mentor to his mentee. And the mentor is none other than the Apostle Paul himself, very seasoned in the ministry, who writes to a young man named Titus, who is kind of a protege in the faith. And Paul writes to Titus, and he writes to him with these instructions on how Titus, as a young pastor, should be equipping and reminding his own church in the work that God has called them to do because of the grace that they have received. Because that church needed to stay on track. And if we as a church are going to stay on track, then we need to be reminded of the same sorts of things. So let's take a look at the reminders of Paul, starting in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If you have your Bibles, find your way to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. And if you're able, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together? Paul, writing to Titus, starting in verse 11, says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind, there's that word in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful 
to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Here's the ending of the reading of our word for today. You may be seated. And what Paul says in these verses is really all bound to the idea of grace. I mean, you could really call this passage that we've just read a grace sandwich because it begins and it ends with this idea of God's grace richly enacted through Christ. And there's several clear reminders in the midst of this passage of how Christians ought to live. There's several directives that tell us you should be living this way. But there's a, there's a firm foundation beneath every bit of that in that grace is the basis of why we live according to God's desires. And so it is God's grace that has appeared bringing salvation to all men in chapter 2, verse 11. And it is the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind which appears again in chapter 3, verse 4. Leading individuals to be justified by God's grace and made heirs according to the hope of eternal life later in verse 7. And so we should probably start by examining this idea of grace. What is grace? What do we mean when we use that word? Well, grace is simply unmerited favor. Grace is the word that we use to describe the good favor that God gives to us when we do not deserve his favor at all. And grace is most richly seen in God's free gift of Christ as the substitute to bear the penalty we deserve for the sins that we have committed. You see, Jesus took our punishment on the cross of Calvary and he was executed there in our place as a substitution for us. That was God's gift to each and every man, woman, boy, and girl to deal with our problem of sin. And that's a gracious gift, my friends. That's a gift we don't deserve. And beyond bearing our penalty, Jesus was raised from the dead in order to ultimately offer to us eternal life. Freely he offers this gift to whosoever will turn from this self-directed life of pursuing my own passions and entrust his or her life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that, my friends, is an awesome gift. And it's all because of grace that is on display from God our Father through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you'll often hear pastors kind of summarize grace as though it's an acronym. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a very helpful way to think of ultimately what are we talking about when we're talking about grace. We're talking about God extending to us his riches at the expense of his own son who died in our place. And that's just a helpful way of thinking of grace Because our richest gifts from God are riches that Christ has paid for by his work of redeeming us. So that's what grace is. What does grace do? Well, God's grace delivers salvation to all men. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Salvation is this word that has to deal with being saved from sin. And condemnation. For God to bring salvation to all men means that God has ultimately provided 
a deliverance for us from the guilt and the pollution of sin in our lives. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are polluted. All of us are tainted in this way. Furthermore, we read in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And so all of us being polluted by sin are due the wages of sin against the holy God in that we all deserve death. We all deserve separation. We all deserve condemnation from God because of our sin. But salvation is God's rescue for sin. God's rescue from eternal condemnation. That's what God's grace has done for us according to Titus 2, verse 11. God's grace delivers salvation to all men. So let me just pause here for a moment to say, salvation has been delivered to you because salvation has been delivered to all men and all includes you. Now, if I were to go online and I were to purchase something and I paid for it out of my own pocket and I were to send that item to your home and you saw a UPS guy or a FedEx guy coming up your driveway with a package from me, you would say that that had been delivered to you. But there's still a decision that you would have to make. Am I going to receive this delivery or am I going to reject this delivery? You you might tell the delivery guy, hey, I don't want that. I'm, I'm going to reject that delivery. You take that back with you. Or maybe you would even stamp it with a, with a return to sender. Or you could take that gift and you could take it into your home. You could use that gift for its intended purpose. Even though the grace has, has paid the price, even though the gift has been delivered to you, there is still something you must do. You must choose to receive that gift. And my friends, when we talk about the gift that we have in Christ Jesus, we're talking about an immense gift that he has paid for richly with his own blood, with his own sacrifice. And he has gone to great lengths to deliver this gift to you. We've just gone through the Christmas season where we've thought so richly about how God became a man and left the heavenly glory in order to be born and placed in in a dirty feed trough. And then Jesus walked about all around with bare feet and no place to lay his head, riding a donkey on occasion, riding in boats on other occasions to share the truth, to deliver the message that God's grace had come. And then ultimately, he paid the price. He paid it with the nails in his hands with the nails in his feet, with the crown of thorns crushed upon his skull, with beatings, with scourgings, with mocking, being spat upon. Jesus bore the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus paid the price. And so Jesus extends to us now. He's made the delivery. He has delivered to all men this opportunity that we might be saved. The question is, Are you accepting the delivery? Are you rejecting His grace to you? Because God's grace delivers salvation to all men. 
Yet all of us must make the decision. Am I going to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life? Am I going to receive his gift? Am I going to entrust my future, my eternity, my life to him? Salvation comes to all men and God wants you to be delivered. He wants you to be saved. But we need to be reminded that God's grace that saves us is a grace that doesn't just produce this one-time sort of change in our lives. We often talk about salvation as though it's only a past tense sort of thing. We talk about, well, you know, there was this point in my life when things were going on or I came to realize through a class or I came to realize through a friend or I came to realize through the word that I needed to be saved and I was at that moment saved. And there is a very, a very real past tense of being saved. But that's not the end of the story because ultimately what we find in Scripture is that salvation has three tenses. We talk about how we have been saved, and that's what we would refer to as the term justification. To justify just means to declare something righteous. At the moment you place your faith in Jesus, God declares that you are right in his sight. There is no more condemnation for you. You have, at that point, been set free from the penalty of your sin. And so that's the past tense of salvation, justification. Well, then God calls us to live for him, and he frees us from the, from the uh, very presence of sin in our lives as we are purified, as we walk with him, as we uh, continue to seek his face. And that's, that's what we refer to as sanctification. That's the present tense of salvation, where God is purifying us of sin. But one day we have this future hope of our salvation as well that we refer to as glorification. And that is when Christ in his new creation takes away sin and its very presence from us. And that's we will, we will be glorified just as God has designed for us to be. There will be no longer this struggle that we go through in the sanctification element. And yet so often we just kind of put the emphasis on that past tense of salvation when God really has a design for us that we would be growing in his salvation we would be walking in sanctification there is a real here and now benefit of God's grace for us as we live on the earth and so you should know that there's a present tense and and Paul talks about these tenses here in Titus For example, when we talk about justification, Paul can write in Titus chapter 3, verse 7 of this past tense of God's salvation, that God saved us so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Those who are condemned don't have eternal life. But God, through grace, has declared us righteous, and we now have an eternal reward thanks to grace. Many Christians, with that mentality that that grace stops there, don't realize that there is this present sanctification. So Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that the grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
And he also writes in verse 14 that our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, gave himself for us to purify us, to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. And then we see that the future tense of salvation, glorification on display in this passage as well. That's why Paul can write in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 that the reason we deny ungodliness is because we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And so I'll explain that just so that it's on a level we can all understand. And and here's what you need to know out of all this. Grace isn't done with you yet. I I don't care if you've trusted Christ many years ago. Grace isn't done with you yet. God still has a work to do in your life. God still has a purpose and a plan. He is still eradicating the very pull of sin on you. And he is still preparing you for an eternal glory. And so we need to realize that God, through grace, has done great things for each and every one of us. But we ought to recognize that God's grace for us deserves a great response from us as well. Being saved is not the end of what we do. It is the basis of what we do, but it is not the end of what we do. And so grace isn't done with you yet my friends. We've seen what grace is, what grace does. What does grace deserve now? Well, in the midst of all these words about God and and what through his grace he has done for those who are in Christ, Paul tells Pastor Titus to remind the people that he pastors how they ought to live. That's that's what he talks about here in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And so he writes, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And we don't have time to unpack every bit of that, but you should simply note that God's grace deserves a submission to God's will by those who have been saved. We should never earn grace we can never earn grace it's not within our possibilities of our frail human state and that would just deny ultimately the definition of what grace is anyways we remember we talked about grace being unmerited favor it's not something we can earn it's not something we deserve we could never earn our own salvation but God's free gift to us does deserve our wholehearted commitment to all that the Lord commands of us grace deserves our godly living Grace deserves our hopeful longing, producing a pure people, zealous for good deeds, as Paul writes to Timothy here. And so the question that all of us ought to be asking is this, how can I step further into what grace deserves from me? How can I step further into what grace deserves from me? When your leadership team and I last year began discussing this new vision for new vision, We had a heart for providing each individual who's engaged with this flock in one way or another a roadmap of sorts that would guide you into a knowledge of what is the next step. 
What's the next way that I progress in growing in Christ? What's the next thing I need to do to follow the path that this church would show would be a healthy path for my spiritual growth in honoring God with my life? And so on this first Sunday of the new year with new beginnings and fresh reminders of our covenant commitments for our members, I also want to provide a chance to take a fresh look at the question for each and every one of us, whether you're a member or not, what is my next step in my walk with Christ? What is my next step in growing in Christ through this fellowship? To make that a little more practical in terms of what we can actually help with. How can I step further into what grace deserves from me? And so I prepared a little form for, for everyone. Whether you're a member or not, there are these forms that are on the front table here that say ready to ready for the next step and this would be a way for you to kind of think through and to make commitments about what the next step in your walk with Christ might be and I've tied these in with our vision and so whether you're a member or not I want each of us thinking through what's the next step in my growth for Christ what's the next step in my response to his grace and I want you to pray over these steps And I'm going to show you how they fit into our vision as we kind of walk through that vision as a reminder. So let me remind you what our vision is. We desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing. We've talked through that extensively over this past year, but some of you are new. So let me just explain that we've taken this analogy of pottery, which is a rich analogy, a rich um, uh, something that you would find in Scripture, by the way. And we've taken this analogy and applied it to how we want to see individuals growing through their involvement in this fellowship. So just as a potter goes and he has to find the clay that he's going to use, then he forms that clay into the vessel to the shape that he wants it to be in. And then he fires that vessel. He places it in the kiln. And that vessel becomes a committed, solid vessel at that point. Then he takes it and he fills it with whatever it he, he wants it to possess for his desire. And ultimately, he causes what it has been filled with to flow out in some use in another way. And much in the same way, God has a design for us to be molded as clay in the potter's hands and to progress in a life that would honor him. And so we yield ourselves to Christ, our potter. And what's the progression that we as a body want to see? Well, first... We desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be found and invited to encounter God here. That simply means we want to see people progressing from the community to the crowd. We want to see individuals who are not engaged with church life, who are not walking with Christ. We want to see individuals come and join with us in this place and hear the preaching of God's news. We want to see people coming and engaging in worship together. So we're talking about going from the community to the crowd. And so to tie that in with our sheet here, the the first item at this found stage would be an individual who would come and take this sheet and would say, as the next step in my growth for Christ... I want to start attending this church regularly. That would be a commitment for someone who maybe pops in and out once every few weeks or, or maybe has come for the first time but finds that this is a place where you see that God's word is going to be taught and God's people are going to be encouraging and we're going to be rejoicing in what Christ has done. So that's a very practical way to live out that found stage of our vision. 
Next, we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be formed into a new vessel by God's transforming power. That is, we want to see people progressing from the, the crowd, those who've gathered with us on a regular basis, to the changed, those who have ultimately been impacted by Christ and His Word. And so just to give you some practicals on this next step sheet related to that, you might be thinking, what's the next step for me? I'm here on a regular basis. Well, as I take the next step uh, in my growth for Christ, I want to, and, and you might choose this option, I want to join a small group for Bible study and fellowship. And what a, what a very practical time to do that today. You've had the chance to look through your directors. You'll have more opportunities to talk through the individuals who are going to be leading those groups. And I've even got a spot on here. Maybe, maybe you see a group that works for you. You can choose that. Or, or maybe you don't see a group that works for you. And we can do a little bit of creative thinking about how do we get a group that matches your schedule? Or how do we get a group that matches kind of the audience that you would fit into? And so... This gives you a chance to fill that out. Or maybe your next step in being formed would be, as I take the next step in my growth for Christ, I want to entrust my life to Jesus. And I don't care where you are. If that's your desire, we would love to hear from you. I'd love to have the opportunity to sit down and counsel you, to give you some guidance, to give you some hope, to give you a better understanding of where you are in your journey with Christ and how ultimately he has paid the debt and and brought to you this great salvation we've talked about thirdly in our vision we talk about how we desire that through this fellowship christ would cause multitudes to be fired into a solid vessel that is ready for his use that is we want to see people progressing from the chains to the committed by partnering with the church and so on the sheet you might say as i take the next step in my growth for christ i want to be baptized or I want to become a member of this church. These are both options that you could choose. Then we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be filled with truth and purpose for God's glory. We want to see people progressing from the committed to the commissioned by discovering and using their spiritual gifts in ministry. So you might take this sheet and say, as I take the next step in my growth for Christ, I want to serve where I'm needed. I want to explore and be equipped for new ministry opportunities. Or you might say, I want to be discipled by a more mature Christian. I want someone to really pour into me the riches of what they've experienced in a godly walk so that I will be more prepared in a rapid growth that discipleship can provide. And then finally, we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be flowing God's riches into the lives of others. That is, we want to see individuals progressing from being commissioned to being the carriers who take the gospel to the world. Our ultimate objective is to get outside of these walls. Our objective is to take the gospel beyond the bounds of what you've constructed here on this property and to see God's glory resounding on the earth. And so you might take this seed and you might say, as my next step in my growth for Christ I want to invest myself in discipling one or a few less mature Christians. Or you might say, I want to take Christ to those who are outside of the church walls through missions or evangelism. Or you might say, I want to teach or lead a new ministry. And so I just urge you, whether you're a current member or not, use these times of covenants and commitments 
that we'll share together here in a few moments at the end of the service. Just to consider and to commit to taking the next step in your walk with Christ through this church. And now we come to the point where we're going to talk about reaffirming our covenant. And the final thing we give our attention to on this day is indeed our church covenant. Some of you are curious about why we have a church covenant. Every once in a while I'll get a question. Why do we even have this sort of thing to start with? And, and I've heard some of you even saying, well, there are no other churches in our area that are, that are doing this sort of thing. And that's okay. These are good questions for us to ask. We ask the members of our church to abide in covenant because it raises the expectations. It raises the bar for membership for our members. In many churches, you could walk through the front door just before the invitation begins. You can walk down the aisle, and then you can walk right out the back door. And you know what you would be called by that church? If you never came back again, a lifetime member, right? Some of us have been involved with churches like that. Even if you're never seen again, you're a lifetime member. Likewise, in many churches, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live your life, or what it is that you treasure in your life. You may not even need to give testimony to some churches before you commit. You may not even need to say that I trust in Jesus. And, and all that it takes in many places is just a desire and you're in. Well, our church covenant and our church membership class that we require for new members who are signing that covenant for the first time, these things require us to take ownership. These raise the bar for what it means. And so each of us must pledge ourselves to abide by a common set of commitments. Now you should also know that a church covenant is not infallible. All right? We, we don't proclaim that this covenant contains every detail of everything that needs to be covered for a believer in Christ we don't claim that it is without error there are some things that I might word differently if we were starting from scratch and of course if I was writing it it probably wouldn't fit on the one page because I've been critiqued all my life about how wordy I am all right so you should probably be thankful that we don't have Jeremy's 15 page church covenant all right but I do see that the principles that are in this covenant that we're going to examine here in just a moment are derived from God's Word. These are rich principles that we can find direct references to in the Word of God. And moreover, there's even this biblical precedent for the people of God coming together to make a covenant for Him. This is not without a biblical precedent. In, in the book of 2 Kings, you'll find this series of kings of Israel and Judah who just get it wrong i mean god shows them what they ought to do god reveals his law to them and yet they choose to go their own way they choose to build up a shira poles they choose to build up idols and they refuse to take their people down god's path but then this one king appears who does things differently this one king appears who finally gets it right and his name was king josiah listen to what josiah did in second kings 23 then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant 
which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out all the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And the people entered into the covenant. Now that's a vivid picture of the people of God coming together to establish a covenant together that they will live in accordance with God's word. And the the covenant that I encourage you to consider if you are a member here today, and I encourage you to consider if you're not a member, to come and be a part of our membership class and to covenant in this way. This covenant that I encourage you to has this same thrust. And so like King Josiah, with all of our people gathered, let me remind you of our covenant commitments. And as I do, I'm going to quickly mention how these commitments are even found in this Titus 2 and 3 passage that we're looking at here this morning. Remember those things that Paul calls Titus to remind the church about? Well, those things are richly on display in New Vision Fellowship's membership covenant. So here's our covenant. As members of New Vision Fellowship, we each covenant together to the following. Number one, I will protect the unity of my church. How so? By acting in love toward other members. We read in Titus chapter 3 verse 4, The kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. If God took such an initiative to show His kindness and His love to people, how much more so should we? I will also protect the unity of my church by refusing to gossip. gossip, Secondly, and, and Paul writes to Titus, remind them to malign no one here in verse 2. I will, I will protect the unity of my church thoroughly by following the leaders. Paul writes to Timothy, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. I will share the responsibility of my church is the second main commitment that we make in our covenant. And it has these subheadings. I'll share the responsibility of my church, firstly, by praying for its growth. We see in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, God saved us according to his mercy, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I will also share the responsibility of my church, secondly, by inviting the unchurched to attend. We read in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's desire is for all men to be saved. And so therefore, we ought to invite the unchurched to attend. Thirdly, we will share in the responsibility of this church by warmly welcoming those who visit. Paul writes in in chapter 3, verse 2, remind them to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all Men, that's a hospitable environment. Third main point of our church covenant, I will serve the ministry of my church. How so? Firstly, by discovering my gifts and talents. We read in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, God saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ, our 
Savior. Elsewhere in the word we read that because each of us receives the Spirit through Christ, each of us is granted gifts that we are to use in the building up of the body, which is Christ's church. I will also serve the ministry of my church by being equipped to serve my pastors. To Titus the pastor, Paul writes, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so there's an important role for Titus as the pastor in leading his flock to provide this sort of equipping of individuals in the flock. If something is going right, he is to encourage and to exhort them to do the right things. If something is going wrong, he is to rebuke them, to call them out, to call them to live and reprove them with authority. And then uh, I will serve the ministry of my church thirdly by developing a servant's heart. Paul says, remind them to be ready for every good deed. All right, fourth aspect, fourth main point of our covenant, fourth main commitment we make. I will support the testimony of my church. How so? Firstly, by attending faithfully. We read here that Paul writes, Christ Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And we ought to be striving to build up a people as well by attending faithfully. Secondly, I will support the testimony of my church by living a godly life. We read in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, the grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's very much a godly life on display. And then... Thirdly and finally, I will support the testimony of my church by giving regularly. Paul draws this contrast of who the people in Titus' church were before they knew Christ. And he says, for we also once were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And so there's obviously a contrast. Now that they are in Christ, they are giving their lives. They are giving all that they are. They are giving of their finances. They are giving of their time to things that are pursuing God's desires and wills in the midst of that. And so we're going to have a final time of invitation now, but it's not going to be like our normal invitations would be. I'm going to invite each and every one of you. So if you're a member here, these sheets that we have on the three tables that are in front of you, the larger sheets are our covenant renewal forms. And these have that same covenant that I've just read in your presence that is available for you. Uh, It's a way for us to, to update information as well. So maybe you've moved over the past year. Maybe you've had a phone number that's changed. We just ask you to fill that out. Sign your name at the bottom if you desire to renew your membership for the coming year. The smaller sheets that are on the table here are for everyone. These are for the individuals who are ready to take that next step. And so we're going to have a time when we're just going to play some music and we're going to allow folks to come up and to record your commitments. There are pins here on the table. And then once we're done with that, once we see the tables clear out, we'll have a final word of prayer. All right, let's, let's pray over our commitments now.